Kalan everyone and welcome to this new episode of Pacific Talks Season 2. In this podcast, I engage in active conversations with my guests to talk about global challenges through a Pacific perspective. Today, I'm sharing with you a conversation I had with Mamta Chen, a women's rights activist from Fiji. I've known Mamta since 2016, when we met at the East-West Center in Hawaii for the Pacific Island Leadership Program. By the way, you'll hear us talk about this program during our talk. Since this time, I've been following Manta's work and I've been amazed by her power, her strength, and her ability to never give up on what is right and on pushing for positive change. She has also been one of the many women who have helped me to continuously question my perspectives and to make sure that my ideas and views on women and women's rights are based not only on what I think, but on what is and what should be according to them. That's what I wanted to talk to her today and share it with you. So now, on to my conversation with Mamta. Uh, Mamta, Yorana, welcome to the Pacific Talks. Thank you. Thank you so much. Excited to be here. Well, it's my very pleasure to have you on this podcast. Uh, so first question to warm up a little bit. Can you tell us just uh, about yourself? Who are you and, and what was your life path up until now? This question is so simple, but it always, always caught me off guard and I start overthinking. <laughs> um, so I try my best to answer it. Um, yeah, well, Currently, um, I'm working for a local uh, feminist organization here in Fiji, and uh, I've been um, involved in the women's movement uh, for 19 years now. I started off as a volunteer, and now I've moved into programmatic work. Um, Mostly, I engage or work with amazing, amazing, uh, diverse uh, young women leaders in Fiji in terms of um, um, taking programs such as um, a rights-based feminist leadership program. Mm. Yeah. So 19 years, that's uh, quite a long journey. Uh, what, what started that? What, what made you so willing and passionate to work for women for that long? Uh, well, uh, after... I had no goals in life. I took some, um, made some bad choices, took some unnecessary risks, and I was just sort of not committed to my studies, higher studies more so. And then I told my parents, I don't think so I could commit to studies. I was just, I don't know, it was something to do with perhaps the decisions I made. And then my mom was like, okay, if you're not wanting to study, and she always, I remember both my parents always told me that money being economically independent is very important for a girl. So they told me, look for a job. So one of my cousins uh, introduced me uh, to one of the local women's movement, and I joined in as a volunteer. And well, that path, has become who I am now, 19 mm. years later and going on. That's what I breed. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Indeed. And time flies, definitely. It when sure you're passionate. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're rec- recording this episode on, on the week of the International Women's Rights Day. Uh, mm-hmm. So as an introduction and know, knowing uh, how much you've been involved in, the, in that uh, domain, 
what is your view on the situation of women's rights in the Pacific today? And would you say that it's better or worse than the rest of the world? Well, research has said that Pacific uh, records one of the highest uh, rate of uh, violence um, in the you know in the Pacific. Uh, I think mm. if uh, you look at the global average, we are twice uh, than the global average, around thirty percent. So Pacific is is at its highest. For Fiji, if I can speak, research has shown that around sixty four percent, sixty four percent. That's more than half. You know. 50%, mm. 64% of women have experienced uh, some sort of like physical or sexual violence from their intimate partners. And I think globally, um, the statistics uh, reach at 68%. So if wow. you do the math and you look at PG in our population, it's 64%. But globally, they're saying it's 68%. And definitely it would have increased. And to take into consideration that when we speak about statistics, uh, when we talk about girls and women, any forms of violence, and we talk data, which is so important, these are the reported cases. So that's something we also have to consider when I'm saying 64% in Fiji. And I think if we look at the Pacific, um, perhaps if we look at 14 island countries or 15 independent countries, most of the Pacific island countries' stats in terms of violence against women is definitely above 50%. Mm. And so so, so we you, when are you say when you say reported cases, that means that yeah. those statistics are just uh, like the part of the iceberg that we can see, right? That's the one out of the surface. So that means that could be even worse in terms of the reality of the exactly. situation. Exactly. So I think it's really important when we uh, talk about, you know, violence against women in any context or even any data, the back of the mind, that is something I've learned over the years, reported. These are visible. And then we have to think of the invisible lived realities of, you know, diverse girls and women in Fiji and the Pacific. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. And, and so the, the work that you've done uh, obviously is not an easy one and you've seen probably a lot uh, while working with the communities. But I'm pretty sure that you've mm -hmm. seen also amazing situations and people. So what, what's the best lesson that you've learned uh, from those people you've been, you've been working with who are actually not hmm. most of the time in position of leadership or so are victims of discrimination, violence, inequalities, and all that? Yeah. Um, we, we, we all come with our biasness and, you know, perceived notion about people, about communities, about intersectionalities and diversities. But what the feminist movement has taught me is you really have to listen when someone is uh, speaking about their lived realities, you know, because we all are different. We all have different stories to tell, different experiences. You really have to listen because they are the expertise of their own lived realities and challenges as well as sometimes the solutions. And something that I learned in PILP in myself and that has really stuck with me and I've been sharing it since I returned is learn and learn relearn that mm. that has become like one of my I don't know how can I say it like a mantra like I absolutely love that and 
with that perspective of you know engaging with young women in various communities that is something always at the back of my head that when young women and girls are sharing their stories because yes we are learning from them at the same time we are unlearning the biasness and we are relearning in terms of the rights based approach so that's mm-hmm. i think really critical for the work that we are doing yeah and that's interesting because that also makes me think about the the, the ed sector uh, mm. like development ed and all that and which is always the criticism that we can hear about this uh, sector which which is very top down approach telling people mm. this is what you need this is what we're going to give you instead of saying well actually what do you need and what where, where can we help and and studies have shown that when you do that and when you let people empower themselves it works much better right Exactly and it's also the context as you've said uh context is very important because uh, something in Fiji would be totally different the lived reality for a young woman in Tahiti so we cannot mm. assume especially for the Pacific Islands that we are all the same our you know our culture our way of life is all different yes women do experience multiple forms of violence but then that comes then there's a trickle effect what happens you cannot just assume that uh, you know like let's say for example perhaps somewhere someone say oh uh, that woman has is a victim survivor of violence leave we cannot say that to a woman you don't know her lived realities mm-hmm. so taking all this into consideration is so important particularly also from the leaders who make decisions and i think covid perhaps was one of the examples of how decisions were made or how people perceived communities and their needs mm, indeed uh, and as you're talking about uh, covid uh, i wanted to to focus on that and the impact of the pandemic because mm-hmm. a lot of research in mostly in major countries but i'm guessing it's the same elsewhere has shown that the pandemic has reinforced inequalities between men and women uh, mm-hmm. for example when one of them had to leave their jobs in order to take care of the kids during lockdown and stuff many women had to make the choice and it was not necessarily mm-hmm. their choice it just happened to be like that and that i think show how gender roles are, are still quite strictly defined throughout the world so how mm-hmm. would you say the the pandemic has impacted the situation of women especially in the pacific yeah what you said is uh, definitely on point uh, we we did we had done some local research and stuff particularly talking with you know uh, girls young women and women and one of the things that really came out was uh, because uh, school was closed so you know p- uh, students were schooling from home mm. it's it, it was a nightmare so f- for so many girls and young women going back to gender roles so they were ex- expected to do all the gender roles at home which is cooking cleaning washing caring care work looking after the siblings and nieces nephew or grandparents while at the same time they had to be committed to studying mm-hmm. and some of the young women and girls were like uh their study was not prioritized it was gender roles that was prioritized and they were overwhelmed lots of uh, mental health issues arose from that because there wasn't any support and even uh, so one of the programs i ran virtually uh, i could sense that the young women would give their apologies or they would not be able to come on even video or talk proper because people were around them 
and they would listen to what they were sharing um, in terms of the leadership program. So gender roles was really, it just hit the roof. And and then obviously when you look at the boys, they had all the chance to do just relax. So that also was really difficult. And for women with children, um, most of the pressure was also on them to manage the housework. And when they were laid off, there wasn't any paid employment. Where do they get the money from? And then they had to look after the children, do the gender roles, and to top it off, manage their studies. So when we talk about uh, women and gender roles, it's multiple, but I think it tripled the impact was so severe that women had nowhere to turn. And the research also showed that uh, women were reaching out for counseling and they would do let's early hours of the morning uh, when like people were asleep so that they mm. could talk to someone. So all that everyday real realities of women and girls really, really got worse during the pandemic. And so obviously most of the decisions taken by governments were taken under the emergency and the urgency mm. to protect the population from COVID. So it's not about blaming, but do you think they could have made decisions otherwise or planned solutions or, or think about like all those impacts and maybe as a lesson for the next crisis that would probably happen uh, in, in the years to come, what mm. should be considered when trying to protect the population, but not realizing that it could impact women and, and all uh, the populations that tend to be the victims of, of all those uh, situations. Like what, what could be done or what could be thought about prior to make the decision? Yeah, it, it was an interesting phase because I started reflecting of, you know, the types of leadership styles uh, mm -hmm. that we learned into the program. And I was like, OK, some of the decisions that were made, it was needed like, you know, curfew and all those things because people were moving. Um, people were not believing in COVID and all those things that we know people were just misinformed and uninformed. Yes, with lessons learned. So when we talk about policies, Policies need to be put into place from the lessons learned for the what, two years now. This is our third year mm -hmm. in terms of how the decisions were made, why the decisions were made, what were the impacts and what are the lessons learned. I think that's really important. And But I, I for me personally, I kept thinking is things were was just so beyond our control. Uh, I think it was in February when I was out of the country and I heard about COVID and I did not really concentrate on that. And and then I realized, wow, that was my mistake because it wasn't happening in Fiji. It did not trickle mm -hmm. into Fiji, in the Pacific. But the way it just exploded and I was like, did the leaders who are, you know, who are there to serve and protect our country did they take this on board and say, okay, hey, this is happening in a particular part of the country. What are the impacts? Uh, what if it happens in Fiji? What's the emergency plan? Just like our lessons learned from Cyclone and um, mm. whatnot. So, yeah, so hopefully uh, good decisions will be made. But still, I think when it comes to leadership, it's also about power. Yeah. And then power in power push the push and the shove who makes the decision uh who is in the limelight 
who, who's correct, who's not correct. And we could see that. Um, some of the leaders who were quite practical, who were quite logical because they had the expertise, but other leaders who necessarily did not have the expertise or were logical, but they felt they need to show their power, that authority, they made wrong choices and wrong decisions. And the people, the citizens, the community who were more more vulnerable were affected. Yeah. So I think it all comes back to power and the choices and decisions that the leaders make. And uh, potentially also uh, being able to learn from the experience of others and, and anticipate as much as you can from them. That's the hope. Lessons learned. <laughs> mm, indeed. <laughs> Um, I'd like to come back to another element you were, you were mentioning a little bit earlier, um, which is, I think, very important when in, we do the conversation around women and their role of, in society. Uh, you said, like, when we do this conversation, when we have this conversation on women, it's obviously different in Fiji as it's in Tahiti or in other continents or countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we see that also used, like, this cultural difference or this cultural specificity is sometimes used by some people to justify the gender inequality or the gender difference. Like, oh, yeah, but, you know, this is our culture. We do differently. Than, uh, and this is a conversation that is imported or, or, or whatnot. So through your work and, and your, your experience in that, how do you address uh, these arguments and how do you engage in conversations to help people reflect on this topic uh, and, and like have the perspective between cultural preservation and social progress. Yeah, cu- culture. When you talk about culture, it's so deeply rooted in in the Pacific um, that it and it also becomes dangerous when we talk about uh, social progress. When we talk about gender inequality, as I've said, I I mostly engage with young women, so it's mm. pretty. Um, I would is not not easy. It's pretty practical when we draft the program and engage with young women in terms of talking about gender inequality and culture. How does that um, affect um, equality? I think it's important. Uh, so one of the lessons learned I've heard not to jump into it, not to jump into conversation and say, okay, this is happening because of this. It's slowly unfolding the conversations. It's asking the young women, it's what is your lived reality? Uh, what, basically, we do gender 101. How, what do you understand by gender? That goes back to, uh, you know, men, uh, boys and girls, men and women, and the roles of boys and girls, men and women, how society perceives them, what were you expected to do at home because you are a girl? What about the boy child? What is that child expected to do? What were some of your, it's everyday conversation, for example, were you allowed to go out at night? No, why not? Was the boy allowed to go out at night? Yes, why? So those everyday live reality to project it, to visualize it, and then unpack 
market. Why is that happening? And linking it to the inequalities. Why are those inequalities? Because perhaps it is said um, that elders in the family are saying boys should behave like this, girls should behave like this. Okay, why are they saying that? Perhaps it's part of the scriptures. Who wrote the scriptures? Who, why are they saying that? slowly slowly unpacking all those and then it comes back to the conversations of power and control because when we talk about patriarchy when we talk about violence against women when we talk about oppression it all comes back to power it all comes back to and who has the power in the society when we talk patriarchy we talk men Okay, man has the holds the power in your home. Who holds the power? It's the dad, the granddad, the older brothers, even if they're younger brothers, they hold the power. So with that comes the conversation of unpacking that power because it's always about controlling women's and girls' bodies, controlling the decisions, controlling the choices. So because culture, when we talk about culture, it can be very it is a very sensitive topic for uh, some of the people and and we cannot go in or come in with that you know i mean, I, I go in fighting i love doing that but mm-hmm. that's what i've unlearned that because you are challenging something they have been conditioned since birth since x number of years and to unlearn that it takes time. It can be a shocker. One of the examples I will use when we talk about, you know, culture and how do we try to maneuver the conversations when we talk about gender equality is uh, in the program, uh, I like to talk about pro-choice or access to safe uh, abortion. Mm-hmm. And I have seen that in my own networks. Um, it can, The conversation, like girls end up crying because we are like, oh my God, you know, when, I mean, the debate on abortion, it's at another level. So I'm like, okay, it's if your faith, your culture, your religion, your choice is not to have an abortion, it's okay. That's your choice. But you don't have the right to deny me that choice because it's my body. I'm making the decision. So it's, and, and you can see the light bulb going in them. Because you have talked about, we all are different. Young women come with their own multiple identities, with their own challenges. We are not the same. So you cannot deny anyone their basic access to human rights. So I think it's very critical. Something I've learned in this field is unpacking stories, unpacking realities, and pushing that rights-based approach um, in terms of, okay, what is right, what is wrong? And I always, always love to throw it back to the participant. So what will you do? What do you think now? Yeah. Interesting. But I guess what makes it even harder in the Pacific is to disentangle also the different cultural layers because you have the traditional uh, culture, you have the colonizer culture that yes. came and influenced and the religion, uh, religious culture that is another element. And and making people navigate to understand, okay, th- is this really your culture or not your culture, or how it had become and how it can evolve, and, and all those conversations must be like another level of difficulty. Yeah, because challenging something that we had conditioned to can be, it, it can be dangerous and well as well as a shocker. And one thing is that, like when we talk about culture, some of the 
maybe one of some of the Pacific Island countries, you know, haven't even ratified CEDAW. We talk mm-hmm. about, you know, Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. And, and also how it is interpreted, like the culture or the scriptures or the text that, I mean, I mean, for me, I follow Hinduism. I was born into a Hindu family and um, I don't know much about it, just 0.01% perhaps. But it does, from what I understand is it does talk about equality, that, you know, men and women are equal. And, you know, one of our supreme god, goddesses is even defined as both being, you know, masculine and femininity. So I think that's so beautiful. But then the way over the years and also, yes, colonization has interpreted it. It has just given power to men. Men, I think men perhaps never had that power, but how it got trickled, they took that power. So I'm always like, it's okay to challenge. It's okay to ask. There's no harm. But then the issue is, as a girl child or boy child, again, culturally, you're not supposed to talk back to the elders or ask elders the questions or just be curious. I think we should teach girls and boys to be curious and ask questions. Mm. And something that the and something that I never had. I did ask questions. Maybe I was given weird answers. But looking back, I'm like able to unpack it myself. Culture really, really, I think is so significant in being able to dismantle the conditioning or to learn about gender equality. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, and on that note, I'd like to have uh, your view on, on something. So uh, as I said earlier, we're recording this episode on the week of uh, International Women's Rights Day. And mm. it happens that here in Tahiti, uh, we have many events organized to quote-unquote celebrate women during those, uh, those days. And unfortunately, from my perspective, uh, mm-hmm. those events are, are mostly focusing on well-being, on makeup, on clothing, on jewelry, all, all those elements. And, mm-hmm. and I don't see many conversation on domestic violence, women's representation, or, or even highlighting women entrepreneurs and, and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, from my position, uh, I've always reacted to that. <laughs> but uh, I'd like to have your view on this because you know the, the, the topic <laughs> much better than I do. And I'm feeling that maybe I'm biased or I have like a distorted view on that. So... So can those kind of initiatives have a benefit for women or is is it somehow not that bad as it seems to me? Um, what, what do you think? Hmm. Uh, uh, well, okay, yeah, because I read that, like, well-being, makeup, clothing, and jewelry. I think that is great because when we talk about women in business, some, uh, most of the women, uh, some women in uh, in business, they are part of this, um, uh, what's that thing called? community or society you know because and mm-hmm. it's about financial independence so that's okay that's amazing uh, uh, but at the same time yes we do need to have conversations on domestic violence women's representation and something in fiji like how you've uh, pointed out in tahiti on well-being makeup clothing and jewelry in fiji is something that i get annoyed with and some of my other friends is cake cutting we have cakes and cupcakes uh, on morning tea for women. And who will prepare those morning tea? It's the women who are preparing those morning tea. So at the same time, when we are saying, yes, we need to celebrate, but at the same time, it's commemorating 
how many X number of years you and you know as i've said women come with multiple identities multiple diversity it's something i've learned again for a woman perhaps international women's day for her means as a business woman is to go out have a booth and sell her jewelries uh someone um to do zumba but for others it's more important to talk about you know multiple forms of violence it's important to talk about mental health so that is also important because women know their lived realities and they know what they want yeah I, but i know where you're coming from <laughs> <laughs> but also, okay so if I, if i sum up what you're saying it's very much the intention so if it's done as a way to show what women can do or just to tell women you can just like enjoy yourself and and like be who you want to be and like all those elements mm. then eventually that sends like a, a good message but if it's only to perpetuate basically gender roles and say oh women mm. are only interested mm. in makeup and stuff then mm. obviously that's when it's it's becoming debatable but celebrating women must not definitely be and I probably and I definitely agree on that on just like focusing on the bad things or the bad situation that is currently going on yeah if 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 we're talking about let's say you are inviting a woman in business who's who's doing jewelries and that's something i mean uh, women in the pacific are so amazing with you know it's it's mm. art with that and you are inviting that particular woman let's say she has a booth she's selling it people are buying it she's making money out of it at the same time what are the incentives set by the leaders or the government or the policy makers to uh, to provide more access uh, resources to that woman or is she be able to share you know her experience why is she doing that how is she doing that perhaps that's the only way for her to be able to make money because she has that expertise so all this it's very important to take into consideration why a woman chooses a particular path yeah okay i see now i get it clearly okay <laughs> thanks manta <laughs> um another element that is also sometimes hard to navigate with is uh is social media uh mm-hmm. we are obviously in an age of persistent communication and in many ways social media has been an agent of empowerment uh for some communities and minority groups including uh women uh, but we also have seen how these platforms have been used to bully to harass to perpetuate many many negative things so in your work how do you use social media as an efficient tool or a positive tool to help women and and avoid them being used as a tool of oppression very much yeah um uh, it's it's interesting when we talk about you know access to technology um and internet because when i talk with young women now it's like my age i sound so old it's like <laughs> i did not really have you know i mean because we are not that smartphones and stuff is so limited so we had to if there was a particular word i did not understand in the feminist world i would look in look up in the dictionary but for now uh, there are so many privileged people or young women who have access to uh, technology data and internet and who can just type a particular word and find out so many amazing things about that for our work i think it's social media is so important let's when we do research um we put it online and yes uh we have to take consider- uh, consideration also not everyone has access to technology or internet but it is important how and we reach we just not 
reach locally or nationally. It's to the Pacific and globally we are able to share the lived realities of uh, young women and girls in Fiji, share the data, the statistics, share what is happening and also at the same time uh, learn from others. So it is really important. But yes, at the same time, um, in from my personal experience and some of my many friends, the bullying and harassment is really, really toxic because social media also can become toxic. And some of the young women, it does have a very negative impact on them. So, and I'm like, you know, the keyboard warriors, it also goes back to how common sense. I think common sense is just dead. Humans, like... Use your common sense in how are you accessing a particular resources? How are you putting out information? That yeah, I think that, is very important. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And that, and that's interesting because as I listen to you, I'm realizing that the, the challenge of your work is to help people navigate into the subtlety of any situation. It's never black or white. Uh, like no. there's no, nothing binary and, and walking towards more inclusivity really goes towards opening people to the fact that any situation is a spectrum of options or possibilities and we have to be very careful and mindful in however we decide to react to any situation. So, mm -hmm. so it's challenging, but it's also fascinating because it can eventually lead to more critical thinking and to more maybe common sense, as you just said. Definitely. And uh, when we talk about, you know, communication or technology or even social media, COVID, uh, I mean, for the first time, that one of the programs I ran uh, in the what, history of FWRM, we're 35 years now, like we went virtual that program had to be virtual and it was challenging because face-to-face -face session is something different from being virtual but at the same time lots of lessons learned and we made sure that we're in constant touch with our young women with the participants because we cannot isolate, uh, you know, the people we engage with uh, during the, uh, the crisis. And COVID was a crisis which showed people become disengaged. It had so much trauma. And social media was also another way to sort of, you know, come and connect, support each other. If someone did not have food, they would reach out. We had a butter system. So goes back to common sense and how individuals are taking that positive step to access social media and to help and support each other rather than just becoming toxic and bullying one another. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, indeed. And that, that ties perfectly to my next question, which comes at the moment of the podcast where I share with my guest a quote from a book that I read recently uh, to try of uh, making a like an indirect conversation between my guest and the writer. And, and for you, I chose a quote from the recent uh, book from Roger Bergman, uh, the historian uh, born in the Netherlands, who wrote this book, mm -hmm. Humankind. And he talks to us about the dark side of uh, empathy. Uh, and this is what he says in his book. One thing is certain, a better world doesn't start with more empathy. If anything, empathy makes us less forgiving because the more we identify with victims, the more we generalize about our enemies. The bright spotlight we shine on a chosen few makes us blind to the perspective of our adversaries because everybody else falls outside our view. The sad truth is that empathy and xenophobia go hand in hand. There are two sides of the same coin. 
Uh, I'd like to have your view on this quote and especially to relate it to uh, what you know about the situation of women in the region. Uh, yeah, when I read this, I, I read this a couple of times. I was like, okay, what are you trying to say? One thing that really got to me, I was like, okay, interesting. The men chose humankind instead of mankind. So that was interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, so I was trying to just pick out certain words or sentences that spoke to me. Um, so one thing is because the more we identify with victims, the more we generalize about our enemies. So when I look at this in terms of, you know, women's human rights, women are victims and survivors of multiple forms of violence. And the enemy is, I would say, uh, patriarchy, the system, Mm. the power. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about empathy, the work we do in terms of women's human rights, empathy is important. Empathy is needed because if there's no empathy, empathy no compassion you are unable to understand someone's lived reality and i I assume uh, that he talked perhaps he this is linked to covid because i read uh, xenophobia so i was like okay maybe this was linked to covid uh and all that, that was prior to it but i guess it prior applies to, also to covid as well yeah i mean and you know i mean islamophobia and whatnot is going mm, on yeah, but yeah, when exactly. when i was trying to link it to um women's human rights in the region empathy is really important otherwise you are not able to do uh, justice to the passion and you just become clinical and in this type of but then on the hindsight, something I've learned, some it's it's sometimes okay to disassociate yourself because it really can mentally mess you up and it can really impact you. So for me, that was like, okay, what are you trying to tell me? And that's how I, for me, empathy is important in the work I do. And mm. But I'd be really interested to know what exactly he's talking about. <laughs> Yeah, I guess the question he asked, uh, or, or the point he's trying to make, and that relates to another research from the, the uh, evolutionary scientist Brian Howe on empathy, where uh, pretty much he says it's good to have empathy. Uh, obviously, it's, it's helpful because it helps us to connect to the people with work we're working with. But the question is, should we also have empathy for those on the other side of the situation, mm, uh, mm. The, the people who have bullied, the people who have discriminated, the people who have perpetuated the system? Because eventually the conclusion being, if you empathize only to the victims, then you grow angry against the, those people who made them victims. And that's where you create division in our societies and, and mm. pointing fingers instead of saying, like, let's try to rebuild something together and be more maybe invitational in, in, in the attitude. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, that's exactly how I perceived it. So uh, my thing was that like when we talk about a convicted rapist, uh, mm. uh, it, it uh, for now it's one of the biggest um, topic in our country is one of the convicted rapists, a rugby player, is out there playing rugby on the field. And I'm like, so so in terms of empathy, so it's like, okay, you're showing the convicted rapist empathy, you're providing him with all these access to resources, he's become a national star, he's playing rugby. What is happening to the survivor? 
So when it comes to that situation, for me personally, I'm like, no, I will yeah, not show empathy. <laughs> yeah, to a perpetrator. Yeah. So, but that was really interesting because it makes you think, and I think this was a good uh, quote. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and it, it made me makes me think of so the work that a local uh, therapist is doing here in Tahiti. And she's mm. working with uh, domestic uh, violence victims and perpetrators, and she's created this uh, group where they can talk to each other. And she she's trying to mm. like make them understand the perspective of each other. And I guess that's where empathy can become very powerful: is to ask each side to say, "Okay, put yourself in the shoes of the other and and try to really understand what happened here mm. and why this person like is angry or feel like being victimized." Because sometimes. Even the perpetrator doesn't even realize that the person in front is a victim mm. because, like, yeah, that's just normal for me, right? Yeah, goes back to the conversation in terms of power, gender inequality, mm. patriarchy, and the entitlement of men. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah definitely. All right, well, my last question for you, Manta. This, uh, I guess this is a conversation that could go on for hours, but... Uh, uh, so there's still a lot to do, obviously, in terms of uh, improving uh, the situation of women uh, in the region and globally and, and to work together as towards more inclusivity and more equalities. So for whoever is listening to you right now and to this episode and, and who's willing to become an agent of change for his or her community, uh, but could feel helpless because it feels like there's so many yeah, things to be yeah. done yet. Uh, what would be your advice? What would you like to share to those people and how would you encourage them to, to, to walk in your steps? Wow. Uh, this question actually took me back 19 years. Uh, you know, when I was like, uh, you know, innocent, young, excited to be uh, stepped into the world of feminism or women's human rights. You come with, you go in with so much passion, so much awe in terms of to learn, to create positive change, to challenge inequalities, it does break you. It, it, because for me, like I have high expectations of things and if things don't go a certain way, I'm like, it, it is not like that. So one important thing is it's okay to take a step back and rethink and it's okay if Things sometimes don't go your way. But the trick is that how are you maneuvering yourself or how are you, you know, in a positive, healthy way managing that? And another thing is that uh, stop in terms of the work I do or if you want to be an agent of change, it's stop looking at the world through a heteronormative lens or take off your bias lens, uh, take off your conditioning, and basically it's learn and learn relearn. Mm. I think that's really important. But that that really got to me uh, helpless for now. I think of so many, when we talk about violence against women, it's an ongoing issues for ages and ages. Yes, we we have had progression in, the, in Fiji and the Pacific. We cannot deny that. Or else today we won't be having this conversation. But at the same time, so many things has been happening that a person does feel helpless. And for, for me personally, I'm like, it's okay if I feel... Um, not good about myself or not good about the situation or I'm just angry at the world. I have this rage. It's okay to feel all that because we are told not to feel angry or the rage or be helpless. But, and 
importantly find that support support system who will be able to be there with you beside you and just uh, you know tell you hey it's okay if you're having a bad day we'll we will move forward and we will if you have that commitment and that passion you will create the change and don't put pressure on self that's another important thing don't put pressure on self and feel like you are going to solve each and every world problem because unfortunately it doesn't happen even super superheroes cannot do that yeah <laughs> That's true, and I, uh, I was remembering while you were talking about something you told me a few years back uh, that mm-hmm. you prefer to uh, go with false hope than being uh, hopeless. <laughs> yeah, I think because that, yeah, that would that's a that's a step forward. That one step mm-hmm. is important, even if it's a small step. It's a tiny step. It's fine. So and I think we have all of us we have high expectations of self and the world but learn to be disappointed. Yeah. Oh gosh, I'm not trying to sound negative but that's the reality that I have experienced that not everything is unfortunately rainbows and unicorns even mm. uh in the movement that we work with it's so many challenges but it's just trying to maneuver and celebrate the little achievements celebrate the achievements put that up first and say okay this is the challenge i'm going to tackle next yeah and i guess yes. if we remain curious and keep asking questions as you said at the very beginning mm. of this episode that's uh, still like the fuel that we need to move forward and to still find ways to continue and to still find inspiration also oh definitely yeah all right well yep. mamta thank you very much for your time and this amazing conversation and all the best uh for all your projects and endeavors and thank you for all the good work you're doing thank you thank you so much for inviting me and being able to share um some of the stuff that i've learned and continue to learn over the years thank you hosted by me Philip and produced by Pacific Venture Media. If you enjoyed this conversation, feel free to subscribe to any podcast platform of your choice. You can also share it on your social medias or with your friends, family or colleagues. And if you listen to it on a podcast platform, feel free to leave us a review. This is very important to us as it helps us to reach out to more people. If you want to share your thoughts and ideas following this conversation with Alexander, You can reach out to us directly by email contact at pacificventry.com or on all our social platforms. Until next time with another guest, another discussion on the challenges of the Pacific. Take care and see you soon.